Welcome to a history of the Space Race podcast, episode 63, Soviet Cover-Up. On January 10th, 1969, the leaders of the Soviet space program met to discuss the future of Soviet efforts in space. Up to now, the Soviet Union had prioritized the launch of a manned circumlunar Soyuz L-1 spacecraft to the moon. The Apollo 8 mission, which concluded just two weeks earlier, however, had totally eclipsed the Soviet Union's plans for a circumlunar flight. The Soviet Union now needed to decide what the future of the Soviet space program should look like. Should they stay the course despite being behind the United States? Should they double down and try to overtake the United States? Or should they do something else altogether? NASA and the United States did not know it, but Apollo 8 was the gut punch to the Soviet space program that really started putting the Soviet Union on the path to accepting defeat in the space race. The meeting on January 10th, 1969, included members of the Council of Chief Designers. That is, designers like Vasily Mishin and Valentin Galushko. Also in attendance were ministers who provided central support to manufacturing of rockets and spacecraft, such as the Minister of General Machine Building, Sergei Afanayasev. At this point, the Soviet Union had three distinct space programs. The first was the Earth Orbital Soyuz 7K-OK. The second was the Circumlunar Soyuz 7K-L1. And the third was the N1-L3 Lunar Landing Program. The question that this group now had to consider was which of these programs should continue and in what form. Some argued that all manned spaceflight should be put to an end. The Soviet Union should instead focus on scientific exploration using unmanned spacecraft, giving the Soviet space program a scientific flavor that showed that they were above the competition with the United States. This appears to have been a favorite argument for those who are behind in the space race. Remember that it was President Eisenhower who had tried to make the same argument after Sputnik. He argued that even though American satellites were far smaller than Sputnik, they did a lot more science. That did not help Eisenhower win over the public, however. Others argued that they should double down on manned spaceflight. Minister Afanayasev, for example, argued that the Soyuz 7K-OK should be used to carry out a manned 30-day mission in Earth orbit. 
When the group examined the prospects for other manned missions under the circumlunar Soyuz 7K-L1 and the lunar landing N1-L3 programs, however, the situation was rather grim. The circumlunar L1 spacecraft was nowhere near ready for manned flight. Vasily mission had been ordered to complete four unmanned tests of the L1 spacecraft before launching a manned mission. As I mentioned last time, the third unmanned test, Zond 6, ended up crashing after its parachute system failed in November 1968. With the need to investigate the causes of the crash, the next unmanned test was delayed until January 1969. Preparations were still underway to perform that test when the group met. The N1-L3 lunar landing program was even further behind. The N1 rocket still had not begun flight testing. The L3 spacecraft had been designed and redesigned several times now, and there was no physical spacecraft anywhere near ready for launch. On top of that, the N1 rocket was barely powerful enough to lift the L3 spacecraft into orbit in the first place. As a result, even before flight testing of the N1 had begun, the Soviets were already talking about upgrading the N1 rocket with liquid hydrogen-fueled upper stages. This would allow for a much more sophisticated L3 spacecraft, but it would also require years of research and more resources that the Soviet Union was not willing to devote. In desperation to keep the Soviet lunar landing effort alive, some began to suggest that they rely on both Earth orbital and lunar orbital rendezvous. By using Earth orbital rendezvous, the N1 rocket would not need to be as powerful. The L3 spacecraft could be assembled in Earth orbit. After airing out possible options in response to the Apollo 8 mission, the leaders of the Soviet space program decided to reconvene later in January 1969 to make a decision on their final steps. Ultimately, the Soviet Union decided to refocus its space exploration along two lines in response to Apollo 8. First, the Soviet Union would emphasize unmanned missions to the moon. And second, the Soviet Union would plan for a mission to Mars as a long-term goal. In support of the first line of thought to emphasize unmanned missions to the moon, the Soviet Union already had two programs that were in the works. The first was, once again, the circumlunar Soyuz 7K-L1. Although the L-1 circumlunar program had called for a manned circumlunar flight, after January 1969, the Soviet Union stopped making active preparations for crewed missions.
Instead, Vasily Mission only made preparations and modifications to launch uncrewed versions of the L-1 spacecraft. With the Soviet focus on optics, sending a crewed mission to the moon now after Apollo 8 would only serve to highlight that the Soviet Union was behind the United States. Better to launch only unmanned missions into lunar orbit and claim that they were using more cost-effective means for scientific exploration of the moon. The second program for unmanned missions to the moon was the Lunacod program. As I mentioned in episode 50 when I introduced the Lunacod program, Lunacod was an unmanned lunar rover. The Lunacod had been developed originally to support the N1-L3 manned lunar landing effort. The rover was to explore potential landing sites for manned missions, send radio signals to allow for a guided lunar landing, and serve as a means of transport between the primary LK lunar lander and the backup LK lunar lander if necessary. The Soviet Union, however, had been preparing as early as 1967 to use the Lunacod program as a backup program in the event that its manned lunar landing effort was not successful. In the backup option, a slightly different version of the lunar rover, known as the Year 85, would perform a fully automated sample return mission. The rover would be equipped with a small scoop to gather lunar soil. That sample would then be returned to Earth. In January 1969, in the aftermath of Apollo 8, the Soviet Union activated this contingency plan. The government passed a decree ordering that the Year 85 version of the lunar rover and the unmanned sample return mission be accelerated. The Soviet Union's second response to Apollo 8 was a manned mission to Mars. This would be a long-term response that would pull the Soviet Union's space program out of the doldrums and overcome any American success on the moon with a sophisticated manned mission to Martian orbit. The broad outlines of the plan was to launch the mission to Mars sometime in the 1970s. So this response essentially conceded the race to the moon to the United States. By planning for the 1970s, however, the Soviet Union would have enough time to finish development of the N1 rocket and replace the upper stages of the N1 with liquid hydrogen-fueled engines and possibly nuclear-powered rocket engines. In April 1969, the secretary of the Communist Party, Leonid Brezhnev, asked Vasily Mission to report on the Soviet space program during Mission's now three-and-a-half-year tenure as chief designer. 
mission took this as an opportunity to explain why the Soviet space program had done so little in comparison to the Apollo program. He complained that institutional disarray, design bureaus tasked with multiple assignments, poorly managed manufacturing plants, severe shortages in subcontractors, and poor quality control all around. Mission even went so far as to say that there was little incentive for manufacturers to fulfill orders for experimental equipment. A subtle dig at a broad problem in the communist economy. Then Mission explained that since January 1969, he and other designers in the Soviet space industry had decided to refocus the nation's space exploration efforts along two lines. First, they would refocus on only automated circumlunar flights of the L-1 spacecraft. No longer would they aim to send a manned mission around the moon. Second, they would focus on completing and improving the N-1-L-3 program. On this point, Mission asked the government for funding to develop the much-needed liquid hydrogen upper stages for the N-1. He also mentioned that with the upgraded N-1 rocket, a new generation of missiles could take the Soviet Union to Mars, Venus, and other planets. He did not make any reference to an effort to beat the Americans to the moon in 1969. In the end, the second proposal to convert the N1-L3 program into one that could sustain missions to Mars and other planets was probably wishful thinking. The Soviet government had not provided the funding and materials needed for a manned lunar landing effort. The idea that the government would suddenly turn around now and fund an even more expensive, more resource-intensive, and more complicated mission to Mars was unlikely. But in the aftermath of Apollo 8 and what appeared to be an impending American landing on the moon, mission and Soviet designers needed to dream and think there could be a better tomorrow. There was one last potential objective for the Soviet Union in response to Apollo 8. Revising the Soviet space program to construct space stations in Earth orbit. The construction of a space station had been mentioned back in January 1969 during the meetings with the leaders of the Soviet space program. The proposal made sense given how much the Soviet Union had already invested in the Soyuz 7K-OK, and because the Soviet Union had just resumed manned missions to Earth orbit the previous October. But the proposal to refocus the Soviet space program on the construction of a space station 
had been supported by only one person, and the idea did not gain a whole lot of traction. The proposal did not even make it into Vasily Mission's report to Brezhnev in April 1969. At this time, the construction of a space station was simply not an attractive alternative to a lunar landing mission. It just did not seem sufficiently impressive enough to take the spotlight away from the United States and NASA should they land on the moon. So, Mission and other members of the Council of Chief Designers continued to dream about missions to Mars and Venus. By early 1969, we can see that the Soviet Union has given up on the idea of beating the United States to a moon landing. In the public, however, the Soviet Union will start to claim that it never intended to land on the moon or even send men on a circumlunar flight. They claimed that they were never racing the United States to the moon. The Soviet Union had not stooped so low as to engage in a politically motivated race in space. The moon was simply not important to them. Instead, the Soviet Union's official pronouncements started to mention the possibility of creating Earth orbital space stations as a jumping off point for future operations despite the fact that the leaders of the Soviet space program themselves were not actually focused on space stations at this time. The Soviets also started to claim that they were only going to explore the moon using unmanned craft, and were looking to a mission to Mars in the long term. The Soviet Union was lying about what had been the true goal of their space program. Yet today, many authoritative sources, including sources I rely upon for this podcast, still accept the lie as fact. History books will say things like, while the United States was focused on landing on the moon in 1968, in 1969, the Soviet Union had already moved on to the construction of a space station. We know for a fact this is not true. As I mentioned, the chief designers of the Soviet space program had not adopted the idea for a space station in early 1969, and Vasily Mission's report to Brezhnev in April 1969 laying out the future of the Soviet space program, made no mention of space stations. The acceptance of Soviet lies as fact is not surprising, however. Only since the fall of the Soviet Union have people outside the Soviet Union had access to documents showing what Vasily Mission and other chief designers were thinking. Prior to the fall of the Soviet Union, those outside the Soviet Union only knew what the Soviet Union was doing and what they said. And in January and February 1969, the Soviet Union launched three missions 
that gave credence to their claim that they were focused only on unmanned missions to the moon and an Earth orbital space station. First, they launched Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5 on January 14th and January 15th, 1969. Second, the Soviets attempted to launch another unmanned L-1 mission to the moon on January 20, 1969. Finally, the Soviets attempted to launch the first automated lunar rover on February 18, 1969. I'll cover each of these missions in turn. The Soviet Union was making final preparations for its Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5 mission in December 1968. The mission profile for the Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5 mission was the same as the mission profile for the original Soyuz 1 and Soyuz 2 mission, before the Soyuz 1 mission ended in tragedy. This called for the launch of a Soyuz with one cosmonaut, followed by another Soyuz carrying three cosmonauts. The two Soyuz would then rendezvous, and two cosmonauts from the second Soyuz would perform an EVA to transfer to the first Soyuz before both spacecraft came home. By the time the Soviet Union was getting around to performing this mission in early 1969, the first that the Soviet Union would accomplish during the mission had already been accomplished by NASA. But at the same time, the Soviet Union needed to move ahead with this mission. Even though the United States had accomplished these things already, the Soviets still needed to learn the basics of rendezvous, docking, and EVA for their own future space operations. There was also one other reason for launching Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5 in early 1969. The Soviet Union wanted to steal the thunder from the United States again. At the time, NASA was preparing for the Apollo 9 mission. I'll discuss that mission in more detail next time, but as part of the Apollo 9 mission, NASA planned to conduct its first-ever crew transfer mission. This would happen when two of the three astronauts moved from the Apollo Command Module into the Lunar Module. By launching Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5 shortly before Apollo 9, the Soviet Union could lay claim to the first crew transfer in space. The state commission overseeing the mission selected four cosmonauts for the launches. The commander of Soyuz 4, who would launch into orbit first alone, was Vladimir Shatilov. The three cosmonauts on Soyuz 5 would be Boris Volonov, Alexei Yeleisev, and Yevgeny Krunov. Volonov would be the commander for Soyuz 5. 
Yelisev and Krunov would perform the EVA over to Soyuz 4. They had already trained for this mission in the original Soyuz 1 and Soyuz 2 mission. The mission began on January 14, 1969 with the launch of Soyuz 4. Upon entering orbit, Shatilov conducted a television broadcast, now a staple of missions to space for NASA and the Soviet Union after Apollo 7. During the broadcast, Shatilov showed two empty seats inside Soyuz 4, prompting speculation about a potential rendezvous and crew transfer mission. The next day, on January 15, 1969, Soyuz 5 launched. Once in orbit, Soyuz 4 began maneuvering to rendezvous and dock with Soyuz 5. There were some issues trying to achieve the docking, but eventually the two spacecraft did dock. After the Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5 docked, the next part of the mission was the EVA and crew transfer objective. Krunov led the way, crawling out of Soyuz 5 toward Soyuz 4, with Yelezyev following behind him. Yelezyev carried a camera to record the historic transfer mission, but he forgot to tie the camera to himself. While he was outside, the camera floated away, and the historic photos were lost. Krunov and Yelezyev both made it to Soyuz 4, successfully completing the first crew transfer mission in history. With that success, it was time to end the mission. Soyuz 4, now carrying three cosmonauts, re-entered the atmosphere on January 17th. Soyuz 5 then followed with Boris Volanov, now alone in the cabin. Soyuz 5, however, suffered a serious problem during re-entry. Prior to re-entry, the descent apparatus containing the cosmonaut was supposed to separate from the service module and the living compartment. But as Volanov began re-entry, he saw that the service module failed to fully separate from the descent module. Similar problems had happened on the Vostok and Voshod missions. In those prior cases, the service module simply burned up during re-entry. In this case, however, the Soyuz service module was significantly larger at 3 tons. It was unclear whether this service module would simply burn up during re-entry, like the service module on Vostok and Vashad. Speaking in code, Volanov informed Ground Control of the situation. Ground Control did not think he was going to survive. With the service module still attached, the descent apparatus kept tumbling during re-entry, exposing portions of the spacecraft that were not protected from the heat of re-entry. Inside the spacecraft cabin, 
Volanov started to see smoke as the insulation inside the spacecraft started to burn. Volanov tried to stabilize the spacecraft using the attitude control thrusters, but he ended up using all of that fuel. At this point, Volanov, thinking he would certainly die, decided to do what he could to preserve his logbook so that some scientific value could come from his mission. He ripped up the important pages, rolled them up, and put them in the middle in the hopes that they might survive. He then started to describe the conditions he was seeing on a tape recorder to help engineers later diagnose the reasons for the failure. He reported that he heard a loud bang, which was the sound of the propellant tanks in the service module exploding. The explosion had enough force to bend the crew hatch inwards. As the descent continued, Volanov realized that the service module had disintegrated. A subsequent investigation would show that it was actually the explosion of the propellant tanks that caused the service module section to separate. Soyuz 5 had survived. But then, Volanov's life was in danger yet again. Soyuz 5's parachute triggered at 10 kilometers above the Earth. The main parachute then twisted and did not unfurl properly. Once again, Volanov thought he was going to die. He would crash into the ground just like Vladimir Komarov in Soyuz 1. But remarkably, the parachute unfurled on its own. Fortunately for Volanov, Soyuz 5 slowed down just enough that the spacecraft was able to complete a landing by firing the landing rockets. The landing itself, however, was not exactly soft. In fact, Volanov's landing was so hard that he broke the teeth in his upper jaw. Only the shock-absorbing seat inside the spacecraft saved his life. The Soviet Union hid the near-fatal and disastrous ending of the Soyuz 5 mission from the public. Soviet media reported only that Soyuz 5 had successfully landed. There was no mention of the problems during re-entry, the problems with the parachute, or the fact that Volanov had landed 600 kilometers off target. In addition to the cover-up of Soyuz 5's problems, the Soviet media boasted that their nation had created the first experimental space station upon the docking of Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5. This was, of course, a wild exaggeration. This was merely the docking of two Soyuz spacecraft. If this counted as a space station, every Apollo mission involved the creation of a space station by docking the command module with the lunar module. But exaggerated, if 
not outright deceitful boasting, once again highlighted the Soviet Union's campaign to obfuscate the history of its intentions in space by emphasizing space stations and suggesting it never intended to go to the moon. The sad part is that, setting aside the cover-up and the lies, the Soviet Union did achieve something that was worth celebrating. Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5 was the first docking of two piloted spacecraft, and the first crew transfer. It was also a much-needed success on the heels of the Apollo 8 mission. On January 20th, 1969, just a few days after the end of the Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5 mission, the Soviet Union attempted to launch another unmanned L-1 spacecraft on a circumlunar journey around the moon. The launch, however, did not go well. The UR-500 rocket succeeded initially in lifting the L-1 spacecraft off the launch pad. When the rocket entered the second stage, however, one of the four engines failed. The rocket started to lose altitude. Sensing a problem, the emergency abort system activated to pull the L-1 spacecraft away from the launch vehicle. The L-1 ended up landing near the border with Mongolia. On February 19, 1969, the Soviet Union attempted to launch another unmanned mission to the moon. Rather than the L-1 spacecraft, however, this was the first time the Soviets tried to launch the Yur-85 automated lunar rover. Unfortunately, this rover never made it to the moon. In fact, it didn't make it very far off the launch pad. Shortly after liftoff, the Yur-85 rover fell off the launch vehicle. The shroud covering the lunar rover payload tore off during flight. This caused a series of debris to fly off the top of the rocket, tearing into the lower stages of the rocket. The rocket then exploded. The launch of two automated lunar missions, the L-1 spacecraft in January 1969 and the Yur-85 lunar rover in February 1969, outwardly supported the Soviet Union's claims that it was only ever interested in sending automated missions to the moon. The reality, as we know today, is that the Soviet Union was very interested in sending cosmonauts to the moon. The L-1 launch was simply the fourth failure in a series of failed L-1 launches that was supposed to qualify the spacecraft for manned flight. And as for the Yur-85 lunar rover, that was the Soviet Union activating its insurance plan to land something on the moon, now that it was clear the United States was going to land humans there first.
Before landing on the moon, however, NASA still needs to finish a few more prerequisite missions, Apollo 9 and Apollo 10. Those are coming up next time.